Welcome to Cover Stories with Chess Life, the U.S. Chess Federation podcast that goes behind the scenes and in-depth with each month's cover story author. I'm your host, Dan Lucas, the Senior Director of Strategic Communication at U.S. Chess, a 501c3 nonprofit organization with an educational mission of empowering people through chess one move at a time. To become a member, go to uschess.org and click on the Join button, or if you're already a member, please consider donating to us by clicking on the Give button. As a member, you enjoy rated play, print or digital copies of Chess Life and Chess Life Kids, promotional discounts at uscfsales.com, and you help U.S. Chess grow the game. Now start your clock and let's listen to this month's edition of Cover Stories with Chess Life. So our guest today is International Master Eric Kislik, who wrote our October cover story on practical attacking chess. International Master Kislik was once ranked the number one most popular chess teacher on the internet back in 2016 on the Internet Chess Club, and he's the trainer of many, many, many international masters and grandmasters, including once being the occasional openings helper for world champion Magnus Carlsen back in 2010 and 2011. Eric is also a chess author of note, having written the book Applying Logic in Chess, which was published by Gambit Books back in June 2018, and he is the author of the upcoming 2019 book, Applying Creativity in Chess. I think he also qualifies as a frequent Chess Life contributor at this point, because in addition to our current cover story, back in the August 2015 edition of Chess Life, he wrote an article about the Queen F3 Tamanoff. And in the April 2015 issue, he wrote about the Thoris and Chess Engines competition. I think you'll enjoy hearing what he has to say and, and reading his article. So, International Master Kislik, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks. I'm glad to be here. So, tell us more uh, about your chess background and chess history and all the titled players that you serve as a trainer for. Well, you know, it's it was uh, all just kind of, I think a lot of things just happened by chance. I would say that for the most part, when I when I contacted players, for for instance, about helping them out with openings or preparation, when I contacted some 2,700 players, the first reaction I got most of the time was something like, oh, wow, you're the first person who's contacted me about that. And I was, I was pretty surprised about that because I just assumed, I, I even assumed kind of right away, uh, I, probably would, I probably won't even hear back, but there's no risk, so I might as well. But, um, but yeah, you know, it, it was, it was really interesting working with players who were much higher rated than me and who, uh, who gave me a lot of insights into how to organize my openings and how to be more efficient and and everything like that. But, um, as a, I, I would say most of the things that I did in chess, um, to, to develop how I think about the game now, a lot of it was just by trial and error. And I had no idea where I was going to go when I started playing, I'd say, for the most part, I had just a huge passion for the game. I just loved chess. I loved reading chess books. I love reading the ideas of great players and hearing how they think, kind of just sort of trying to follow what their logic was, how they broke down positions. I really liked certain players. I loved players like Geller and some players who maybe weren't the most popular at the time, but who just I, I really kind of grasp their their thinking when I read through their books and so I, I was I was doing it just kind of through passion of the game love of the game and 
And I didn't even realize it until recently, but somebody told me, they said, oh, you went from 1900 something to 2400 plus USCF in three years. And I was like, oh, really? In three years? I thought it was longer than that. But, you know, it was, it was just a really unpredictable path. But I think, you know, the, the, key, the key thing for me was just I wanted to be consistent every day. And, and every day I had really small goals like, OK, I'm just going to study four pages per day and be consistent. And even if I have a really long and tiring day at work, I'd come home and I'd go, you know what, I really want to make sure I get in that study. I want to make sure I stay consistent. I want to make sure I stay focused. And just just piece by piece, just kept improving my competence in chess just a little bit, just a little bit. It, I, I wouldn't say that there was anything, at least as I was going improving in chess, that really was incredible or anything. But it was... <clears throat> It was more like just a lot of small steps, a lot of small steps. And and I, I mean, even um, even at, when I was an IM, it was still a big deal for me to I, I won two or I tied for first in one GM tournament and I won another one. And, you know, in those tournaments, there wasn't even a prize. It was a closed GM tournament. But I, I remember before one of the games, um, somebody needed to, to draw for an IM norm. And you know, it, it's common in these types of situations for players maybe not necessarily to be that ambitious. I thought to myself, you know, I really want to try to win. I really want to try to go for the maximum. <clears throat> so that's definitely one of my things that, that I think it's a very, very healthy approach. I know this is a really, really hard thing for players, but I think it's a great attitude to, to try to go for the maximum all the time. And I had a game. I had a game when I played against Wesley Sell. He was overrated. He was a little bit below 2,700. But about five years ago, I played Wesley So, and amazingly, I had a winning position on move 12. And it was in the Reykjavik Open, and I just couldn't – I almost couldn't believe how good my position was. And I just kept doubting myself and going, oh, no, this I can't be winning against Wesley So in 12 moves. That's not possible. And, you know, then when I looked at it later, I was just thinking to myself, you know, yeah, I just can't do that. I, You know, you have to – you have to believe in yourself that regardless of the opponent, you know, you have to, you have to go for the maximum. And, you know, I really, I, I think that's a, a really big key for, you know, because part of, part of improving in chess is, is being able to, to get those points against stronger players, especially much stronger players. than when you get over those psychological humps, you can, you can really make a lot of progress. So I think on a lot of things over time, my, my thinking changed in many, many ways. So um, it's been a really, a really unexpected ride, and all the, all the chess stuff that I did was uh, was um, hard to predict. I mean, I had no idea where I was going to go, and it was just like, well, as long as I'm having fun, as long as I'm learning every day, probably I'm going to move in the right direction. And slowly, I started picking up things piece by piece. And you know, one of the I also wrote two. I think I wrote two articles for Chess Life on the Kislik variation. I forgot to mention that to you. Um, but, uh, that, that also kind of came about just kind of by chance. I, I just kind of, one of my approaches was to be a bit experimental. So when I played the Rye Lopez with black, I basically played almost every single variation over the board. And a lot of them were quite dubious lines. And I came across this one line that I, 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 I had a special liking for, and then I played it and I looked in the database and nobody had played it before. And then suddenly I was I was helping a bunch of IMs and GMs and and they said, yeah, we like this. We want to start playing this. So they all started playing it, too. And then suddenly um, one of the IMs played against Fiddler 
and he played it against Fiddler. And then um, Spiddler started playing it himself. And then later there was a, there was a, I think it was a, an ICC webcast. And Spiddler was discussing the opening variation. He goes, oh, yeah, it's the Kislik variation. I just thought that was a really funny situation because, again, it was, it, this wasn't planned or anything. It was just totally by coincidence. It just happened that way. And so I was really fortunate with the way almost everything turned out. So, but yeah, it's, it's, it's been a ton of fun. So you've become really known for your openings research and, and preparation and, and theory you've developed. Uh, it's interesting to me, though, that the Kislik variation, the one that's named after you, sounds like it was almost serendipitously found. <laughs> um, how about the, some of your other opening research? Talk to us, because I, I think the, the average club player views it as a bit of a mystery how opening theory has developed in this computer age. Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting question. I, I mean, that the same thing uh, happened to me a little bit before. There was a, there was a variation of the Sicilian, in the, the Rouser variation of the Sicilian, and I had seen Grandmaster Joe Baba playing this line, and there was just, it, it was a little bit of a weird variation, and I, I just somehow developed a liking for it, and I ended up playing it against, I ended up playing, and of course losing, against some very strong Grandmasters. I lost Fredo Javits and Effie Menko. Fredo Javits was 2650, and I think Effie Menko was 2700. They weren't very good games, but um, the funny thing was, well, I was, I was willing to play it against them, and, and somebody contacted me and said, said, oh yeah, I heard about the Kislik variation. This was long before the, the one that I call variation now. And this, this variation... Um, I always called it the Joe Bava variation because Joe Bava played it. But on, on chess publishing, they called it the Kislik variation. So I said, okay, sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, a lot of it, a lot of it in my case had to do with, I, I did, a, I did a lot of, I did a lot of, I had a friend of mine who was, who was a correspondence player and he was, uh, he, he was creating the opening book for a, for a computer, for a chess engine. So he was always interested in kind of showing me all the latest novelties and things like that. And I was talking to people like Grandmaster Larry Kaufman, who's very knowledgeable about openings, you know, very big on um, on all these new things. I, I think the Kaufman repertoire in, in black and white was a very, very good opening book. So I, I, you know, I consulted that book. And the funny thing was that, that after that book came out, I think that I want to say that was 2012, somewhere around that time. But I, I, I marked up the book and I thought, oh, well, there are maybe about 20 or 30 things I want to ask him about. So let's ask him about all of them. And so I, I actually discussed everything in there. And it, it's, it's really, uh, yeah, it's really an amazing thing nowadays that how, how you can just kind of interact with, with authors and people you, you thought maybe you might, might have never had any contact with. I mean, for instance, like um, before I, made, I wrote this book, I contacted John Nunn and he was one of my childhood heroes. I mean, I, I read his books like Understanding Chess by Move, and I, I, I never really thought that I would be in contact with him. And I, I, so I, I, I kind of pitched him my idea for a book, and I thought, well, you know, we'll see. He, maybe there's a 20% chance he'll reply. And he not only replied, but was very enthusiastic and was really eager to, you know, get a contract and everything together. So... Um, I, I was really surprised by the level of enthusiasm, but yeah, it's re I mean, it is really amazing in the chess world 
how so many things can kind of come together. And it's, it's, it's really amazing. But going to, to what you were saying about, um, about openings, I mean, yeah, in my case, what I like to do is I, I just try to, I just try to become acquainted with as many things as possible. I try to look over, well, what about, what about some of the correspondence games? What about the high level grandmaster games? What about, you know, even in some cases, some of the computer world championship games. And I just try to look around and be aware of everything. And I, I keep pretty detailed notes on everything. And I just try to always be aware of what's going on. And, and whenever there's something big that I want to update, just have a little notepad. And I just write in, all right, this opening, this opening, this opening, this opening. And, um, and yeah, just over time, over time, it just keeps building up. You start, I mean, you start off with, you start off with nothing and start off with no files and then slowly you, you put together some files here, you put together some more, you put together some more. And then now I have two different databases with 1000 files in one is, one is for an E4, uh, all, all my lines for E4 and the other is for D4 and others. And, you know, just over time, just slowly build up. And I think the ultimate goal is that, is that you have kind of a system where, it's very easy to it's very easy to kind of add new things to it essentially. So it's kind of like I would think of it this way. It's like it's somebody plays a new opening against you and maybe a very, very small file on that line. And what you do is you, you face you face that variation and then you just add in a, a very short line, maybe eight or ten moves, and maybe express a few thoughts on it. But I do the same thing with analysis of games as well. Every player has an understanding of all the games they play and all the openings they play on the right path to, to big improvement. I think that's a really, really big thing. And to be totally honest, when I was, when I was you know, around 100, 1700, I, I, I never really did those things. I just thought, oh, well, I don't need to or, oh, I can get by without it. But now when I look back, I think, yeah, you know. Just being really organized about even about what you know is so useful in chess. So that's been a big thing that has that has really helped me out in terms of. I mean, it's 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 also because a lot of the time you'll you know you might play the same opening three or four times, and then you face it the fifth time, and you're sitting there at the board and you're thinking to yourself, "Oh yeah, what did I conclude about this last time? I don't remember." And you, I mean, you kind of want to avoid those types of situations where you don't even where you did hours of work on something and then you don't even remember what you concluded. So, so I, I, I definitely try to try to keep things kind of compact and I try to be really, really aware of what I've concluded and, and what I've learned in those situations. And I want to double back on a couple of these points. Uh, one, I, we don't want to leave the listeners hanging on the Wesley So game. You said you had a winning position after 12 moves. Did, did you I, I lost. The How game. did it end? I, I lost the game really badly. Yeah, it was. A, and if they want to look up the game, what year was it, and what event? Uh, it was. It was the year 2013, and it was the Reykjavik Open. And did were you in that winning position as a direct result of opening preparation? Yes, actually, I was. I I, I had prepared this opening line. Actually, there was a book that came out by Grandmaster Larry Kaufman, and and he covered this line of the, it was a, it was an F3 Grunfeld and the F3 Grunfeld started becoming very popular. I think part of the boom was caused by the Anand Gelfand match. And just, just the fact that, that 
Anand was playing it very seriously, you know, was the top player in the world at the time, made it made it become very popular. And so um, Larry actually wrote a book on on that line, and and we discussed a lot of variations. And and I, I think I, I I don't know for sure. It may have been it, it may have been that that I surprised him with a move very early on in the game, and and just by being really surprised. Um, he might have blitzed out a couple of moves that he might not have normally done. But anyway, I, however, it, however it happened, I got a fantastic position after nine moves. And then by move 12, it was totally, I mean, it was, it was a dominant position for me. Unfortunately, I, I, I was forced to play a concrete, forcing, straightforward line. And if I don't, then I only have a small advantage. And then, then it kind of kept slipping. Move by move, it slipped and got better and better for Black. So I, I would definitely say it was a case of it, it was a case of me not being ambitious enough, me trusting my opponent too much, and I, I, I think most chess players have are very familiar with what this feels like when you you play somebody and you go you go oh he must see that he must know he must know something I don't and you know over time I I think I've gotten over that but at the time I just had that feeling and. Certainly now, if I was playing playing that kind of situation, I, I'd think that uh, that I'd play much better anyway. Yeah, and the other thing that I found interesting because we seem to get a letter at least once a year at the Chess Life offices asking us how can I get an opening variation named after me, <laughs> and I, I think you provided the answer to that. It, it's it's done by. First, very hard work followed by uh, just the the name rising organically and with a little bit of luck. Yeah. So, <laughs> no, I, I mean, I, the thing is, the two lines that were called the Kislik variation were both not main lines. So, I mean, they were both a little bit offbeat. And the, the, one, in, the one in the Rouser Sicilian is a line which I consider to be dubious. I think, you know, it's, it's probably not that good. But um, but it was interesting to me, and and they were developing some theory on it. So yeah, that's that that is a that is an interesting one. It was mostly it was mostly by chance, and I had experimented for for the one that Spidler called the Kislik variation. In that case, really, it wasn't planned, it wasn't intended or anything. It just it just happened, and uh, and a bunch of people said, "Oh yeah, you should you should write a write an article on the Kislik variation," and so many people were. We're calling it that. So, you know, and, and the thing is, they didn't really have another name to call it. So they were wondering what to, what to call it. So um, so that was just very lucky, very fortunate. But that, that was fun to be a part of that. I can imagine. But your article in the current issue on practical attacking chess uh, isn't an openings based article, although you might make an argument that it uh, arises out of good opening play. Uh, but why don't you summarize the article for the readers and you know, tempt them to actually dig into it? Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that a lot of the time, specifically with, with really great attacking players like <clears throat> maybe Mikhail Tall or Kasparov or players like that, some players may have a tendency to think, you know, that's a great attack, but I'm not sure if I could really do that myself. Maybe some of these ideas are, are out of my league. Maybe they're, you know, maybe they're calculating way too far for me to actually see. And one of the things that I say kind of pushing back a little bit against that is that is that one of the most famous games that I can recall was the game Kasparov-Topalov, which was played in 1999, and it's called Kasparov's Immortal Game. 
And even in, even in this amazing game played by Kasparov, the thing is, a lot of his, his, his best attacking sequence, it wasn't based on calculating to the end. It was just that he decided that his moves, that, that basically on each move, he concluded that he was playing a move better than the next best move. So we only have to play the best move, not work out everything to mate. And as long as, uh, I mean, a lot of the times what can happen is sometimes we're attacking and everything else actually looks bad. It's kind of like, so one of the, one of the examples in there is a, is a Mikhail Paul sacrifice and his opponent um, had almost no defensive pieces near his king and tempts him to sacrifice a piece. I mean, you have to be really, really brave to, to tempt Mikhail Tall to sacrifice a piece like that. And basically, Tall had the choice. Well, if, if I retreat my knight, then I'm going to be slightly worse. Slightly worse, probably with very few attacking chances. And, and so my, of course, I can, can't see into his head at all, but at least as a practical player, my way of thinking about it would be something like, well, you know, if I play the sacrifice... My opponent's king is very exposed. I'm getting at least two pawns for the piece. And all of my pieces, I have three or four more pieces or maybe even more that can come to the attack. And my opponent's king is a long-term liability. So the fact that the opponent's king was a long-term weakness really made it much easier to play the sacrifice. So it's one of those things. I, I, I definitely think it's one of those things where, where people can be thrown off and think that it's a much, much harder attack to play than it was. Meanwhile, you know, maybe the logic for the initial sacrifice was, well, if I go back, I just have a passive position with no play. If I play this unclear, very fascinating sacrifice, suddenly I have a big attack and all my moves are easy to play. I'm just kind of bringing all my pieces into the game with tempo. And so I love the fact that he was combining that positional principle of improving the worst place piece with attacking and you know, constantly improving, improving another piece, improving another piece. And it's, it's great to see because when I see it, I can see that each move can be played without deep calculation. So on that level, I really like it, especially as a coach, because then I know it's not the case of him just having calculated out 20 moves. He's just going, okay, uh, what's the best move I can play that will improve my position? And it's just kind of gradual improvement, improving the position move by move. And and I really, I really found that very, very fascinating about a lot of Mikhail Paul's attacks. So that was one thing. And there were, there was another uh, article or another uh, example in the article. There was a, a Steinitz game, and I was looking through, I was looking through collections of classic games, and and there was a Steinitz game. And my first thought when I saw it was, was I mean, it was it was a game that, in many sources, was considered to be um, an example of of superb defensive play and when i looked at it i just thought to myself you know steinitz's king looks really exposed and the, the the center is currently closed but if there was some way to open it up then then i'm pretty sure black should be winning that was just my intuition just with all of black's pieces in the game and the defensive side only having basically two or three pieces nearby the king and the other side having four or five pieces i just thought you know, if we can open up the center, this should be great for us. And I think it's one of those cases where in, in some of those types of examples, you might see, for, for instance, a lot of people being a little bit too persuaded by the results. They see, oh, Steinitz won this incredible game against this weaker opponent. So, you know, probably he had worked this out and it, it's a defensive master. And 
he did definitely have some incredible ideas in the game, but objectively, the position that I showed was one where Black should have just continued with direct attacking moves and then would have had a winning position. So, so I definitely think there are, there, are some, there are some natural biases that can cause players to not find these wins and not find some of these ideas. So I, that, that would also be my explanation for why, in some of these cases, um, some of the annotators might not have found some of those moves. You know, in, in some cases, there's a tendency, as I said, to be results-oriented. And on another level, there can be a tendency to just kind of go on previous analysis, like previous analysis maybe by a grandmaster, international master, or something like that. And <clears throat> I was just taking a look with fresh eyes and just saying, okay, what, what seems like the most direct idea for me? And what seems like the most d- direct way to open up the position? And, and sometimes those, those moves just don't end up being analyzed. But, um, but yeah, I just, I, I love the idea that, that a lot of, a, a lot of attacks, specifically attacks that I see in my own games are mostly the result of just slowly building up the position. And, a lot of the time, a lot of the time, for instance, I, I'm not going to be winning games where maybe my opponent has has uh, you know a, a bear king and I have two pieces attacking and I just I just win with my queen and knight and they just don't defend well. A lot of the time, it's more like I just slowly build up. You know, both sides have a relatively safe king and I'm, I'm slowly building up on one side of the board. And then gradually things build up. And I think that's exactly what we saw in, in, in all the examples in the article. And probably the first example in the article was one that kind of blew me away <laughs> nearly the most. Um, just, just this amazing example of really, really calm play, just slowly advancing the pawns up the board. And, and there's, there's definitely, there's definitely um, a natural fear that many players have of creating weaknesses when they advance pawns in front of their king. But in this particular case, the main point was that the attacking side had about four or five pieces over there on the king side, and the defensive side had no pieces that could that could target the king. So so in in that sense, when you're deciding, well, am I taking a big risk if I'm advancing pawns in front of my king? If they have no actual pieces that can exploit it, then in many cases, you, you aren't taking such a big risk. But I, I love the fact that there was a very natural flow to the moves. And I also like the fact that, that very few of the moves, even the sacrifices, needed to actually be backed up by really, really deep calculation. Because the thing is, if, if you're forced to see a 10 or 12 ply line, I mean, that's something that's that would often be outside of the bounds of many grandmasters. And so, I mean, for for most players there, I mean, I think that those are, are pretty rare exceptions, very rare exceptions, I would say. And so I, I, I thought this was a, a good example. They, these were good examples of just kind of realistic, practical attacking chess. What's really funny is what you're describing as calm and simple moves 
was actually made by a chess engine, we should point out. The game you're referring to is Stockfish versus the Johnny 8.1 engine. Yeah. Um, and it's actually another aspect of this article that I found so fascinating was you were able to pull examples from games this year between chess engines, as well as the Steinitz game from 129 years ago. Yeah. It, it just really speaks to the richness of chess to me. Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, I... I uh... I try to keep an eye on everything, so I'll be I'll be looking at classic games. I'll be following the latest um, computer chess world championship. I'll be analyzing games of my own, analyzing grandmaster games, following world championship matches, everything like that. And basically, whatever I see that's that's really interesting, I'll, I'll pay you know close and special attention to. But yeah, no, when I saw that game, my first reaction when I saw that game was wow. And the great thing about it was that even though it, it was played at a very, very high level, when I saw each of the moves individually, I thought, you know, none of these moves are, are actually such difficult moves to justify or play on our own in a real game. So I love the fact that there was I, – I, I love the fact that mainly it was kind of like these attacks were more like a, a, a continuation of just good general chess strategy that, pro, had, that had been started earlier in the game. So it wasn't like this attacking play was a totally different dimension of the game. It was kind of like just a natural continuation of it. So I like the way that it had such a logical feel to it. So we have some interesting questions from readers. We have our best question contest each month sponsored by USCF Sales, where they the winner of the best question gets a $50 gift certificate to UFCFSales.com. And the questions that I have this month, I have from three different readers, and they all come from the Facebook group Chessbook Collectors, which is a very interesting uh, group, very active, with lots of interesting commentary on people that are interested in chess literature. And I'm going to save the best question for last, but the other two are very interesting as well, and I really appreciate these reader questions. Uh, the first one comes from Brian Karen. He says, in your excellent book, you repeatedly mention that the best form of study is to play often. Yet there are many players who are quite active, but have reached a horizon point, including grandmasters. Is it possible to make significant gains once you've reached the horizon point? Yeah, that's a, that's a superb question. And uh, I think uh, actually somebody reminded me of this, that that I described kind of a plateau as so I, I think that on one level, the first thing I'll say is that I think a lot of people will assume that they're in a plateau when they're not. And what I mean by that is, is I, I give a, a slightly, it's only a little bit arbitrary, but I had to give some kind of definition of what a plateau is. But I basically described a plateau as if you played, if you played 50 games in a row without even any slight improvement and also where you felt that, that you weren't making progress. And if that happens, you know, if you feel like you haven't made any progress in the last 50 games, that is definitely possible that you've hit a plateau. And an interesting point to note is that Agnes Carlson got stuck when he was, I want to say, 14 or so. His ranking kind of stayed the same for, for about a year, I want to say a year and nine months. It's just pretty amazing for one of the most talented players ever, you know, to, to even have that kind of problem um, lasting almost two years while while being in his teens. So I think a lot of people aren't aware of that. And, and a lot of people might assume that development just comes, boom, just automatic. But in my case, what ended up happening was 
I was close to 2400 level. I was about to hit 2400. And um, I had a couple of really tough setbacks. I played in a GM tournament where there were there were 10 players. Um, the lowest rated player besides me was 2472. And so it was basically a bunch of strong GMs, a strong IM and, and me. And I ended up scoring 0.5 out of 10 in the tournament. And so what ended up happening was I dropped, I don't know, something like 45 points. And I, I, had, a, I had a good drop. I, had, I lost a lot of games. I was way too over eager to try to win every single game and try to get my points back. Um, but I learned a ton of lessons from, I mean, that was, that, that's about as bad of a, of a result as a player can have 0.5 out of 10, especially against that level of competition. And, um, but you know, I think that the important thing was that I, I just had a good attitude about it. And I just said, you know, what can I learn from this experience? What can I learn psychologically from this experience to come back stronger next time? What can I do kind of in the tournament to prevent these kinds of problems from happening? So what ended up happening was I, I dropped all the way from 2390 down to 2308. And uh, I just, I was still really, really, you know, analyzing my games, kind of building a very compact, small opening repertoire to play in a bunch of tournaments. So I basically planned it like this. I said, I'm going to play five tournaments in a row and I'm going to try to get into a good groove and I'm going to see how things go. And and I planned it out so that I would do that mostly in a summer where I'd be able to play a bunch of tournaments in a row. And I, and I had a game, a key game with Black, where I, I beat a GM, where I took a big risk. And it was a really complex game. And I very fortunately won a game with Black against the GM. And then after that, everything just started going going in my favor. And so I went from 2308 all the way up to 2432 in a span of, I want to say, six turns, something like that. I'm, I'm referring to FIDE. And it was a live rating of 2432. I think the, my peak actual saved rating was 2412, something like that. But I had a really, really nice nice rise. But the thing is, it was totally unpredictable. Because for the last, I mean, so, in, so to put it into perspective, in 2009, I was uh, 2390 something as a live rating. And then I went all the way down to 2308 in 2011. So, you know, in a span of two years, people might be thinking, well, you know, you didn't you didn't improve what's going on. But that's the thing that that's that's part of the reason why I think I think this is I can't really stress this enough that we need to be really careful about being too. oriented. So I always focused on a task oriented approach. I focused on what tasks can I do to you know, what things do I enjoy that will motivate me to study chess the most and that will will make me be consistent. And I, I developed, you know, this kind of system where I just kept aware, I enjoyed everything I was doing. And so it, it wasn't really a chore or a task or anything like that. And I think what ends up happening is that is that the a, a lot of the time these plateaus, I mean, here's the thing, they're they're hard to describe because for instance, your rating is plus or minus 90. I mean, let's say so in USCF terms, this is a little bit harder to describe. I would say, just as a guess, that your rating is probably about plus or minus um, 120 of what your actual rating is. And what I mean by that is that is that that's two standard deviations away. So basically, if one standard deviation is 60, essentially what that means is that whatever your rating is at any given time, it may be... It's it's within 120 points of what your real rating is. So in another in another 
from another way of looking at it, kind of what I'm saying is we shouldn't be too obsessed with the actual number because we may be wildly off. I mean, essentially what that means is, so l- let's imagine that a player is, is 2150 USCF. What, what that means, I mean, imagine if, if exactly what I'm saying is correct, which I have heard many chess mathematicians say, so I'm assuming it's correct. Um, you know, let's say, let's say that's right. So imagine someone's 2150 in, and they want to become an, an, a national master and be 2200. Well, what that means that if their true strength is 2150, if they just play enough games just by natural variance, they're going to hit 2200. Probably by variance, they might even hit 2250. You know, like I was saying, if their rating is plus or minus 120 of their real strength. And as they play more games, they're likely to keep improving too. So that's a very important thing to think about. Well, as a, as a senior age player, I would modify that somewhat and say that, and if you're playing a scholastic level player, it's, their rating's probably plus 400 of what it actually is. <laughs> that can easily happen. Yeah, no, it's, 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 really, it's really, really tough when I'm coaching scholastic players and they say, oh, I just play this player rated 1100. And I said, yeah, well, they played like 1700. Yeah, a lot of these players are, are very good. So it's important not to underestimate anybody, but... One thing I would say to answer that question more directly is I'd say that that if all the, if you are really at a plateau, horizon point breakthroughs often require looking at things through a fresh lens. That can mean deeply annotating. I mean, so for instance, so for instance, one thing I do is that is that I always ask myself after my games. I ask myself. So so I I remember quite quite clearly. I was leaving a tournament hall. So I, I think, I mean, it depends how far you travel after you, after games. But I was about, I was staying in a hotel about 20 minutes away, about 20 minutes away from the playing hall. And so what I did as I, after each of the games, as I walked home, I answered all these questions to myself. I thought to myself, okay, who won the opening battle of this game? And then I thought, well, what were the critical points of the game? And I thought, what were the, what were the positional errors that I made? But I have changed the pawn structure at any major point. And I said, did I, did I make it bad this game? And I also, and the last thing I thought about is, you know, were there any key candidate moves that my opponents played that I missed? And then I thought to myself, what logic would I need to be able to consider those moves next time? And I thought a big stage in my development was when I started to play against grandmasters and I would play a whole game and not have overlooked a single one of their moves. And I remember the first time I did that, that was actually one of the happiest moments of my chess career, even though it was one of those silent ones. You know, it's, it's kind of like, it, it's kind of like, it felt like I, I had reached a new level where I was, I was able to not be shocked by any of the moves that were being played. So that sense, you know, asking myself all these questions right after the game, that by the time I even got back to my hotel room or or back to my house, I, I had already really deep, I, I a deep understanding of the game that I was going to an, that I was going to analyze and look at later. So basically, I think that that if you try to look at things through a fresh lens, you deeply annotate your games, you understand them well, ask yourselves a lot of deep questions about those games specifically right afterwards so that they're fresh and you can analyze them later. And, you know, sometimes it, it can be something like ha- having a new coach. I knew, I know an IM who told me he was stuck at 1900 and he trained with Perlstein for, I don't know, six months or a year. And 
he said that just just having a brand new approach really helped him move forward in chess. So I definitely think looking at things fresh and new perspective can be very valuable. Well, your answer was so thorough and interesting to Brian's Karen's excellent question that you may have already answered the uh, question that I've identified as the best question contest. So, but so we'll see. Um, so Brian Roundtree from Colorado provided the question that I'm I, calling the best question for the October issue, and it is: What is the one thing more than any other in your study or technique of thinking? that improved your chess rating or skill over the top from where it was previously? Wow, that's a, that's a hard question. But it almost sounds like you answered it a little bit by describing how you kind of... Analyze my games? Would, would review games after, right after it, thinking about these questions and trying to uh, go through GM games and... Right, right. I mean, th- this was th- a lot of these things were just things that I came up with on my own. I'd just been thinking... You know, I'd be thinking, you know, I, I want to be really structured. I want to make sure that I'm not missing anything, that I'm thinking about all the core key components of the games that I played. But a thing that I always stress a lot is candidate moves, basically just all the moves that you consider and that your opponents consider and play. Uh, we want to get to a point where we're not constantly being surprised by moves that our opponents play. And so... That is a really big thing. That's that that's definitely something. If it's not number one on the list, it's definitely in the top three. Where it's always one of those things where if I'm missing moves, I want to get to a point where where my thinking is clear enough that at the board I'm able to, to spot those types of moves. But I also want to say that, that in my own play, what, certainly what helped me what helped me in my own play when I played tournaments was just just being really of my own weaknesses was very valuable for me. I remember probably when I was I was about 1900 and I played. I want to say it was the Western States Open, and I don't remember which tournament it was. I think that was, but I, I played in this tournament, and my goal when going into the tournament was I, I really wanted to I really wanted to focus and and make sure that I was aware of all of my opponent's threats and really aware of all of my weaknesses. And I know that might sound like it's a little defensive, but I would, in a sense, say that I was trying to play a bit like maybe Karpovian style. I would describe his style as active positional, which is kind of a positive uh, is a is a positive spin on maybe playing. Let's say you know you're you're trying to take care of your position. You're trying to make sure you're not weakening weakening anything. But I remember that that I really frustrated a lot of my opponents when I played twenty players when I was nineteen hundred. I was probably underrated at the time, but when I focused on really not giving them anything, not giving them anything for free, that that made it really tough. A lot of players would take really big risks just to unbalance the position or to create threats. So I would say from the path, at least from 1900 to, let's say, 2100, in my case, being really, really aware of the opponent's ideas and my own weaknesses was very valuable for me just because... It, it cut out a, a large segment of errors that I was making. A lot of oversights, a lot of, you know, not being aware that my rook on H8 is undefended. There might be a tactic. When I started thinking about, started thinking about my weaknesses, I would go, okay, wait. I have a few tactical weaknesses here. I have a few undefended pieces here. I need to be careful about that. And I just gradually, slowly improved these types of things. And, I mean, but by a similar token, I think that... I think that unearthing unusual tactics usually comes from recognizing weaknesses in a position, 
or it can come from pattern recognition. But I would say that pattern recognition, one thing I sometimes do is look through many, many examples in a row. So as, as, as an example, I know somebody who has a huge, huge book collection at his house, and I'll, I'll go over there and he has so many tactics books that I can't go through them all. So sometimes what I'll do is I'll just flip through the pages and immediately look up the answers and I'll try all the answers in my head. And you know what? Actually, that's that's not so bad because you can pick up a lot of patterns in a very short amount of time that way sometimes. So, you know, of course, solving is very valuable, but this is also actually can be pretty valuable for increasing just your awareness of patterns that you might not have seen before. So one thing that I recommended in terms of that helped me a little bit with visualization when they were tactics that just totally blew my mind what i tried to do was close my eyes and follow the peace path key tactics in my head i tried to follow how the tactic played out in my head and a lot of time when i did that it, it started to it started to sink in a little bit more it's kind of like i'm trying to create memory hooks for myself so that I understand these things, uh, so that these things are clearer to me and I understand them better and on a deeper level. So that's, that's kind of try to avoid all of these, you know, because a, a big aspect of getting a lot better in chess is is avoiding all of these catastrophes, catching these tactics, you know, keeping control of the position and all these types of things. So these were, I think, the three main strategies that helped me. Well, thank you again. A great answer to a great question. And Brian Roundtree, again, thank you for uh, entering the contest and look in your email inbox for your $50 gift certificate from uscfsales.com. And thank you to uscfsales.com as always for their sponsorship of our podcast. So Eric, I'm going to, I'd like to leave you with one last question. Um, your, this article is extremely meaty. There's a lot for the readers to really dive into, but it's relatively short. Uh, where, where can they go for more examples and information on practical attacking chess? Well, um, I, I did make one quite short video, which I just called fundamentals of attacking chess. And, um, it, you know, the thing is, it was one of those things where I just thought to myself, if I was 1600, what, what would be something that would be really helpful for me to think about? And basically the, the, two, the two main things that I emphasize in there is when I'm, you know, when you're studying from a book, like you, like I remember probably one game in particular sticks out in my mind. There was this game, this uh, Viswanath Anand game he played against Michael Adams and he sacrificed his rook. And I remember when I studied this game when I was about 1500 or so. And I just couldn't understand it at all. It made zero sense to me. It, it was in all these books and, I, and everyone's like, wow, this is so brilliant. It's you know, genius. And I said, yeah, I kind of get that, but I don't really get it. And the thing is, when I look at it now, now it finally makes sense to me. But the way that I broke it down is that, is that Anand had this great attack and the two main aspects of understanding these types of attacks, it comes down to concentration of force, how many attacking pieces there are versus how many defending pieces there are, plus focal points, what exactly is being targeted. And the, the reason why this, uh, this Anand attack worked is that he had four attacking pieces and his, his opponent only had one or two defensive ones. So even though he was actually down a rook, uh, it actually didn't matter because he had, he had a focal point to target and he had much more attacking force. 
that way of thinking about it really would have occurred to me. So that's one thing I can say. I, I also, I really love the book on Tom's best games that um, the, the latest version, this world champion edition, that was one book that was really inspiring to me. So what I, sometimes what I did when I played USCF tournaments, like I, I used to play game 45 tournaments and what I would do is like, it would be a Sunday morning and I would pop open Anand's best games and I'd study one game from the book and it would be some amazing attacking game. And I would just feel really inspired. It just really motivated me. And so I'd, I'd have all these good emotions from studying the game. And then I would, I would uh, get on the train, go down to the tournament and uh, yeah, try to play like Anand. So that's, that, that was one thing that, that helped me. Um, also more recently, I came across, came across the book, um, Alakine's Best Games, which was edited by John Nunn. And that is a, a fantastic book. Um, and I, I really, um, I really think I should have paid more attention to Alakine's games in my development, mainly because here's the thing. You don't have to completely immerse yourself in it just, just to become aware of the games, just to become aware of the style, the way that he tried to play. Because, I mean, he did win four world championship matches. The way he played was I, I remember when I studied in, in um, my great predecessors, Kasparov was really praising Alakine's attacking style. And I thought, right, I kind of see that. I kind of see that. But I wasn't really sold. And then when I studied this on Alakine's best games book, after that, I said, OK, wow, I can really see where Kasparov's coming from. So that's another one. And I also really liked Fire on Board 1 and 2 by Alexei Shirov. I thought those books were both both very good, just kind of giving you clear insight into the way that he thought about positions. And, you know, it was kind of like the analysis in Fire on Board 1. Can I, I've seen it criticized some places, but it really doesn't bother me that much because it's the kind of natural analysis that if you're watching, let's say, you know, an Aronian or a Giri or somebody just kind of annotating, analyzing their game just after they've played it. It was analysis kind of of that nature. So it was kind of casual, but you can understand. So those would be my recommendations for, for uh, different sources to, to look through for attacking chefs. Well, Eric, thank you so much. This was a fascinating discussion. I mean, we, we really covered the gamut from, from openings to, to your favorite chess books and, and how the class level player can improve to how world champion Magnus Carlsen can improve. So I, I really enjoyed listening to this. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Take care. Bye-bye. And now it's time for our monthly segment, Checking In with Jen, where we talk to our senior digital editor, Jennifer Shahadi, about everything happening on our various U.S. chess digital platforms. So welcome to the show, Jen. Thank you, Dan. It's great to be here as always. The big news this month is the Olympiad, and we've got it covered forwards and backwards. Tell us a little bit about what we have. Well, Grandmaster Alejandro Ramirez is actually on the scene reporting on both the U.S. Open squad, which are defending their gold medals um, from Baku um, in two years ago. And then also our women's squad, which is very interesting this year with the addition of the uh, young Jennifer Yu. Um, and it's uh, it's really great. I mean, it's just one of the, the best tournaments in the world to play in, to write about, and to follow. So it's uh, exciting for the chess world. In fact, just this morning, I saw a video of a, a proposal at the Olympiad, which I thought was uh, very, uh, very beautiful. Um, Arthur Kogan, a grandmaster from Israel who now lives in Spain, 
um, said something funny on his Facebook about the Olympiad. It's the only two time you can walk into a room and actually see 2,000 of your Facebook friends. <laughs> yeah, that is funny. And now, you you played on some Olympiad teams yourself, right? Oh, yeah. I played in three, and it's definitely including the, the one that won silver medals in Calvia. And it, it's just definitely the best experience of uh, my chess career because playing on a team and meeting people from all over the world, it's just such a special time. There's teams that are fighting it out every round, like, for, of course, the U.S. teams, and really thinking about making medals in the case of the open squad about gold. But then there's also a lot of teams that are there to, to learn about the game and to have fun and to meet people. So, of course, they're trying to win every game, but since they're not in contention for medals, it's a little less fierce, and you see a lot of socializing and fun, including the, the famous Bermuda Party, which is hosted by the Bermudan delegation and brings everyone together on the free day. You say famous Bermudan Party, but I'm, I'm unaware of it. Tell us a little bit about that. You never heard of the Bermuda Party? Oh, man. Dan, you got you to gotta go to the Olympiad one time <laughs> to uh, you know enjoy all the... Uh, the journalistic excitement, and uh, of course, there's always a lot of uh, FIDE politics underway as well, which may be more or less exciting, depending on your pension. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, the, the Bermuda party is, uh, uh, it's just always right before the rest day. So players, even the strongest players and the the most started studied teams know they're going to have like 36 hours to recover. So you really see people let loose. So as we're recording this, the Olympiad has only just started. However, when it is uh, available for, for download on our website, uh, it'll only be a matter of days until the October 5th last round. Um, but there will be some follow-up uh, posts from post-Olympiad, correct? Yeah. Well, I mean, we're really focused. I guess it depends on how much of that depends on how we do, right? I mean, Alejandro is is covering it um, during the event, and then Maurice Ashley is also going to be doing video coverage. Another thing I am posting this week is um, an interview with Mike Klein, who's the chess journalist of the year for the third time. And he's actually on the October Chess Life cover um, and he talks a lot about why the Olympiad is such a special tournament. And this is going to be leading us into um, our National Chess Day. So we'll be going from uh, this international coverage to very local coverage uh, in the U.S. Uh, chess Day this year is October 13th on a Saturday. Do we have any uh, specific posts or uh, do we have any kind of hashtag set up yet for this? Well, the thing about National Chess Day is we really encourage organizers, um, local, or even just people enjoying the day in the privacy of their home to, um, to, to let us know. Either email me at uh, jshahadi at uschess.org or share with us on uh, Facebook and Twitter how you're celebrating National Chess Day using the hashtag National Chess Day. And it's, uh, it's really fun because you're right. It's hyper-local. This is all about how you celebrate. It's not about the strongest player, the the biggest win. Um, and uh, yeah, usually we get a nice variety of people. And then I usually post like a roundup with a bunch of tweets and like different smaller stories from around the country. And another unusual thing that we've got going on for October is for podcast listeners who have been enjoying this, these cover stories with Chess Life podcasts, we're going to be introducing a new podcast uh, at some point in um, in October, most likely our target date is October 12th, the day before National Chess Day. Uh, and this new podcast will be called 
one move at a time. It'll focus on people who are advancing our U.S. chess mission statement, which is empowering people through chess one move at a, at a time. And so, so Jen, tell the listeners a little bit about how they can access our podcasts um, if, if they want to hear a current one or if they want to hear an archival one. Well, I think that it depends on how you generally listen to your media, but I know there's a lot of iTunes users out there, so subscribing in iTunes is, is definitely a, a great bet. And you can also just listen to it directly on our website as well if you're in the in the habit of going to um, uschess.org and checking out our latest news stories. You can click on a story and uh, listen to that and subscribe to our RSS feed if you prefer that way. Um, so, yeah, and of course, we will also be posting reminders on our social media accounts about these podcasts. And if you're interested in hearing an archival one, you can, on the right side of our uschess.org page under US Chess News, there is a uh, podcast link and you can find the archived editions there. That's right. And as we add more podcasts, that'll just, uh, that'll actually just give you a, a potpourri of options of all the different podcasts. And uh, of course, they're also cross categorized. Um, women, kids, international events. So uh, you really are going to find um, a lot a lot of the new material in U.S. chess in that vein. And listeners, I will tease that we do have even more uh, interesting and exciting podcast news that will be coming down the pike over the next couple of months. So please you know, listen and be on the lookout for that. And Jen, um, as we start to close up, just remind our listeners what all of our various social media platforms are. Well, we're U.S. Chess on Facebook and Twitter, and we're also um, U.S. Chess Federation on YouTube, U.S. Chess Women on Instagram and Twitter. And uh, yeah, those are those are the main ways to get in touch. And I'd say during big events, we're probably the most active on Twitter, but um, sometimes we do a little bit... Um, more uh, fun stuff on Facebook that you wouldn't see on Twitter. So definitely follow us everywhere. Thank you so much as always. And I look forward to talking to you next month when I'm sure we'll have a lot of world championship news to talk about. Oh yeah, world championship news and hopefully good news from the Olympiad. Absolutely. So thank you very much, Jen. Thanks, Dan. Thank you for joining us on this October edition of Cover Stories with Chess Life. Make sure to listen next month when I'll be talking to Al Lawrence about his November cover story on the U.S. Open. Write in with your questions for Al now about the U.S. Open for your chance to win a $50 gift certificate to uscfsales.com in our Best Question Contest. Send those questions to letters at uschess.org. And also make sure to be on the lookout this month for our new podcast, One Move at a Time, where I talk to people who are advancing our mission statement of empowering people through chess one move at a time. Bye for now.